do things in paintings that you can't do in real life. Like I can fracture and bend the space. I can warp gravity. I can do things that are weird or unnatural. And that's, to me, the way the world was feeling. And so I literally started glitching and, and fracturing some of these paintings and, and bending space and having gravity be warped because that's kind of how I felt the world was going. That's Scott Lisfield describing his painting called Glitch. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host and, of course, art model. Oh, yes, Sammy Yunan. And with today's guest on the program, we class it up. We're joined by a painter, a visual artist. So tuck in that shirt and spit out that gum. It's company manners time. Scott's work is remarkable. His 500-plus paintings often fuse pop culture elements with, uh, like, corporate debris and overlooking all that mainstream mess. It's a solitary astronaut. We'll reveal more about the astronaut as we talk. The painting he's currently discussing is Glitch. Okay, imagine a silhouette of a city, say, like, New York City or Chicago. But, but let's go with New York City. And above it, you would expect to have, like, sky, right? Well, it's got Lisfield's glitch. There is no sky. Instead, it's all pixelated. As this other universe, for lack of a better term, starts to bleed through, like a multiverse or something, and flying through the pixels is the General Lee, the infamous Dukes of Hazard car. What? Yo! And standing in front of the cityscape and looking up at the General Lee flying through this pixelated universe that's bleeding through above the New York City skyline is an astronaut. No worries, I included the image in the show notes, but I just wanted to take a moment to highlight the competing aspects pushing for space on the canvas because it's all wonderfully absurd and stunningly surreal. You can see why Killer Mike recently gave Scott IG love. I dig the guy's work as you can tell. And so this was a treat to finally talk to him about sci-fi and painting and that lonely, judgmental astronaut. We never seem to get his approval. We even get into Fireside, Gary Larson's fantastic comic, which is always fun. That guy doesn't get enough recognition, so I was glad to tip my hat to him. Anyways, yes, here is Scott Lisfield doing a better job explaining Glitch and the thinking process that prompted this painting. I've spent most of the last six months in my own house just watching TV. Um, and so, you know, when you do that for that long, like, you start building a relationship with TV shows instead of people, which also feels kind of weird. And that kind of reality started pouring into my paintings in a weird kind of way. So I started making paintings about, you know, movies and TV shows and music that I was listening to. And, you know, it occurred to me that when I was a kid, you know, I watched, I, I actually really liked Dukes of Hazzard when I was a kid. I loved it. I had a bunch of the toys and it wasn't until much later in life I kind of realized that I, I had toys that had the Confederate flag on it which just you know in hindsight seems very wrong and, and I felt very weird about that um, and so you know I, I kind of that that one little painting with the General Lee kind of glitching by um, kind of encapsulates how kind of all those ideas about how the world I'm seeing seems to be broken how um, things I'm watching on TV kind of are somehow creeping into my perception of the real world, how um, the things I thought of as a kid were kind of okay or not okay, and that we shouldn't take any of that for granted. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I felt weird kind of painting a Dukes and Hatsby car, but <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we'll kind of get what I was going for with that one. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird thing with you have lots of pop culture references throughout your paintings. Mm-hmm. And the the problem mm-hmm. is that with pop culture, you can't, I guess, delete it or erase it. Like Dukes of Hazard is a thing yeah. that's always going to exist. Do you know what I mean? Regardless of how we feel about it. Yeah. It's like, that was an actual show. I think it was like seven seasons or nine seasons, something ridiculous. Like it was mm-hmm. there. <laughs> and that's the, mm-hmm. that's the problem with, with pop culture. And I know sometimes we can come at different uh, perspectives or have different emotions and we get older and we, our perspective shifts, but it's just, we're stuck with pop culture. Like once something is made and kind of injected into the mainstream, especially as that was on a national TV show or a national uh, broadcast channel, it's like, we're stuck with it. That's it. 
Yeah, we're stuck with it, but I don't think I don't think that means we can't change the way we think about it. I mean, much mm. like we can tear down statues, we can't. You know, I mean, I, I I have a very different feeling about Michael Jackson and Bill Cosby than I did when I was you know 12 for very obvious reasons. And same with uh, Dukes of Hazard to a certain extent. You know, it, they're still out there in the pop cultural world. But, you know, I think our, our perceptions of them shift and change over time as we kind of realize that, you know, people we thought of as heroes were not heroes. Um, and maybe people we didn't think of as heroes really were. Um, so I don't, I don't know. People people say, like, oh, it's piece of hazard or, oh, it's pop culture. It's not really that important. And, you know, to a certain extent, that's true. But, you know, a lot of my work is about how pop culture really did kind of inform who I was, certainly when I was growing up, but still right now. Um, I don't know. I think it's important to always think about those things as we continue to live with them. Yeah. When, when you first started painting, you were kind of doing it. You started in the late 90s, uh, 1999, uh, when mm-hmm. Y2K was about to happen and they were promising that mm-hmm. airplanes were going to fall out of the sky. And like uh, mm-hmm. it was also a new millennium. Like the, there was a lot of angst at that time, right? Because of the all those kind of spiritual, emotional shifts that we were going through and we didn't know about the technology. There was a lot of upheaval and kind of unsettling feeling uh, as we kind of went in from mm-hmm. 99 to 2000. Is that type of angst that we went through, is, does that mirror at all the current pandemic or is it a completely different emotion? Um, I think it's a, little, it's a little different. I feel like 2020 is kind of what we thought Y2K plus like, the Mayan 2012 thing was, I feel like this year has been what the, what we thought those years were going to be, but, the, but you know, 1999, 2000, 2012, like, they weren't actually that big a deal. Mm-hmm. There was, there was certainly, some, I mean, I don't know, there were, there was changing times, and there was a lot of sort of uh, weird angst in the air, but it didn't end up materializing with anything really substantial, but this year obviously has in ways that I think are you know, really unprecedented, certainly in my lifetime. Yeah, and when you're talking about, like, your childhood, I felt like from about the the Challenger disaster in 86, um, Mm -hmm. like, up till about Y2K, like, I felt like it was a string of broken promises. Uh, Like, by the time we got to 2000, it's like none of us had jetpacks, none of us were vacationing on the moon, right? It was kind of like a bad marriage where, like, the, the future kept promising, like, baby, I'll change, I'll turn over a new leaf, (laughs) <laughs> and it ne- like it was always lies, and then the promises would be always be broken. Um, I don't know if that's the yeah. same feeling you had, because I kind of feel like that is appears a little bit in your paintings. That it was like, yeah, this two thousand like onwards, like where are the jetpacks and moon calling vacations? This is a bust. You guys lied to us. <laughs> well, that's definitely that. That part of it is actually that's very true. That that was a huge part of my original impetus for making some of these paintings back when I started. You know, because uh, I started painting them right after I got out of college, and I was, um, I had, I had, you know, we were closing in on the 21st century, which when I was growing up, like you said, the 21st century was always the future, um, and and the future always meant, you know, living in space and having robots and, and all this stuff, and to 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 reach 2000 right as I was, you know, also reaching kind of adulthood. And you know, doing things like getting my first job and living on my own for the first time—it was—it was a frustrating, disappointing time, because the future was not the future I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And that's that's definitely something that was an original inspiration for me, and it's something that I continue to think about. That said, the 21st century has become very weird and futuristic in in ways I think that we didn't quite imagine it would be. But yeah, the whole like, hey, we'll be orbiting Jupiter and hang out with <laughs> robots. Like that part just didn't really, we, we kind of dropped the ball on that one. Yeah, that was a bust. It was like the internet, when the internet first came out, it's like, you know, you'll be able to like look up anything and you learn about bees and flowers and like you can like read anything you want and it'll be like, it, it sounded very much like a utopia. And then like mm-hmm. when you look at where it is now and you mentioned American politics just a little while ago and how divisive it is and yeah. polarization and like people are like um, basically like looking up their own facts, <laughs> picking up their own yeah. reality as like, that's not the Internet you promised us. You like <laughs> what happened to that Internet? I know it's, it's very frustrating that, you know, um, for the first time in anybody's lives, you can look up anything by just clicking a little button in your pocket, right? You can, you can just pull out a device and look up literally any fact in the world. 
And yet it, somehow it seems like nobody actually knows anything anymore. Um, and facts don't have any real meaning anymore. Mm-hmm. Very, which is frustrating. I don't know. I think, I don't know. Anytime, anytime anybody thinks a utopia is around the corner, that, that's when we should maybe be worried about what's actually around the corner. Yeah, it doesn't seem to last, which I mean is the whole point of a lot of science fiction, especially in literature, is that they always set up these utopian societies, uh, Brave New World and things like that. Um, and then there's always somebody goes along and wrecks it or is not happy, and then it starts to crumble. Like, it's very difficult to sustain. Well, I think it's, I think it's, I think that's human nature. We're not, we're not designed to live in a perfect world. Um, we are, I don't know, we're, we're com- competitive mammals, you know, and, and as soon as somebody gets a little bit of power, um, or influence, it's like they want to do what they want to do. Um, I, I don't know. I, just, I think I, I have trouble believing we're set up in a way to, to really achieve anything like utopia. So then this is a strange question. So I don't know if you can properly answer it, but then like your work uh, has these kind of retro sci-fi elements. Mm-hmm. How much of your time are you spending like thinking about the future uh, as we were just kind of talking about, or like even, or like even living in the future, like you said, like mentally just trying to picture what the future is like uh, versus like being present or even dwelling in the past, like how are you kind of oscillating between the three, uh, the past, present, and future? That's a great question. I, 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 for a very long time, I've thought about my work as kind of mixing all three of those things together in a kind of, in a kind of way, talking about um, the future, but, but in a way that relates to the present. And that also very weirdly has a lot to do with the past because, you know, I'm thinking about movies like, you know, the original Star Wars trilogy um, or, you know, Star Trek or things that came out in the 70s, which is now 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, So that's the past, but it was our idea of what the future was going to be like um, and how that kind of, in a weird way, shapes the present. Um, So, uh, you know, those are things I've been thinking about for a long time. You know, and as I I continue to think about it, the more I could sort of, even to this, even though I've been painting these astronauts for 20 years now, the ideas are still sort of crystallizing in my head in terms of like how I want to talk about these things. Um, so basically I do spend a lot of time thinking about the future, but mostly in the context of the, the idea of the future that we've written for ourselves, um, either through movies, through TV shows, through books, through literature, through comic books, this idea that we, we continually try to predict what our future is going to be. Um, And some of those are dark and some of those are light and some of them involve space and some of them involve all kinds of other things, but how that really relates to where we are right now um, and where we've come from and how, you know, kind of in a weird way, our idea of what the future is going to be like um, messes up our, our, our presence, you know, like, like Mad Max or something, you know, we all look at that as a work of fiction, but then, you know, then, you know, you know, Australia was on literally on fire last year. And now, you know, here in the U.S., the West is on fire and, um, you know, deserts are encroaching. And so all of a sudden we look at Mad Max is like, well, wait a minute. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> is that really a future we want? Like, we, we, you know, now is right now, this moment in time that we live in right now is the time to do something about it. And we seem a little bit complacent to look at some of these things as fiction when maybe we should be like, well, no, maybe we don't want Mad Max to be the reality. So that was that was kind of a long, convoluted way of answering your or not so answering your question. But um, I I think my paintings right now I think I described them recently as a conversation about the future with the present, and I actually that's a pretty good way of describing them. So I do I, I read a lot of science fiction literature and you know I watch movies a lot too. I'm always thinking about how you know the things we talk about the future can affect what we're doing. You know things like Elon Musk is making trying to make things that sound right out of a science fiction movie, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it always cracks me up when things like, like the, 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 the like a hoverboard or the shoes from back to the future. The lace ups. Like, well, let's just make those, you know, it's mm-hmm. in a weird way. It's like the, the future we predicted 30 years ago, we're just sort of making it. Whereas if, if back to the future had, had never come out, we, we wouldn't really be doing that. So I don't know. It's, it's this weird mix of like, what, what, what are we really doing right now? Um, and, and how is that going to shape the future? I don't, I don't really know, but I am thinking about that a lot. Yeah. You're talking about like things, for example, like the uh, Star Trek and how that the communicators influenced the flip phones mm-hmm. we had uh, in the nineties. Yeah. 
And and the other obvious one too of what you're talking about is um, Terminator 2, specifically Terminator 2 with Skynet. And we will mm-hmm. make jokes and stuff like that. Uh, we have Skynet memes and yeah. stuff like that. And it, but Skynet is yeah. actually pretty frightening it's, as a horror, as a yeah. horror movie. Yeah. It's, it's 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 not something I would joke about. <laughs> like, um, but yeah. and it, and the the movie was called literally Judgment Day. Uh, and we were found humans <laughs> were found wanting. You know what I mean? And we got erased. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a food product out there called Soylent right now. Like, it's oh. called Soylent. <laughs> it's named after Soylent Green, which yeah. in the movie was made of people. Yeah. So, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but part of, part of what I, I mentioned, too, like Brave New World, and we were just like Terminator 2, and I guess this is related back to your paintings, but is there... Um, I, addicted is the wrong word, but I don't know what else to use. But are we addicted to, like, endings? Like, we want to see how these things end? We're used to like the things we celebrate in our culture, like startups, startups, right? Mm-hmm. And we like beginnings and things mm-hmm. like that, and origins and um, all those kind of things. But are we also addicted to uh, or curious about endings? Yeah, I think the word I'd use is obsessed. Maybe I, I definitely think. We there are. you go. That's a better um, word. Yeah. Yeah, I think. I mean, there's, there's a. I mean, not all the movies are successful, but there's a constant stream of movies coming out that deal with you know the destruction of the world in one way or another. And I don't know, these things go in cycles, you know, like when Armageddon came out and Deep Impact came out the same year, like 20 years ago, and, you know, Independence Day. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've actually thought about this a lot. I'm really not sure. I'm sure there's people who have written theses about this, but like, I don't know why it is we're so obsessed with how things end for our civilization, but we really are. And yet we seem kind of unable to really, almost paralyzed to really do anything about it. Mm-hmm. It's with this pandemic, I, I, I'm not going to say it's funny, but because nothing about the pandemic is funny, but it's, it's odd that, you know, if you watch any sort of disaster movie, there's always some scene where, um, you know, the science advisor is telling the president, we have to do this or we're all going to die. And the president is like, no, I'm going to ignore you. And like <laughs> his evil advisor is like telling him to ignore the scientist. Mm-hmm. That's like a major plot point in every single movie. Yeah. And those people are always seen as stupid and bad and evil. And yet we're living through the exact thing right now where the president is like ignoring his scientists and there's a whole bunch of people who are siding with you know we've seen this movie why mm-hmm. why are we siding with the, the bad guys of the movie again i don't, I don't know <laughs> i don't know where i'm going with that but it's, yeah um, well that's the thing it's it's uh, in what you're saying too is it's kind of sometimes the sci-fi falls in deaf ears like how many times mm-hmm. have we referenced 1984 right and it kind mm-hmm. of like we know mm-hmm. to pay attention and to kind of keep history alive and all these kind of things and then like nope we just mm-hmm. teach different things in school and like <laughs> the places where you expect yeah, I think like 1984 to be vibrant it's it's dying yeah i think that's where i was going with that point is that that's what really surprised me. I, that's the part that i always felt was not realistic about those movies is when like the, the head of science is like we need to do something we're all going to die and like people are like nah i was just like really you probably listen to that guy um and now that we're living through it i'm realizing like no actually we don't yeah and to your larger point about like ignoring history, you know, ignoring 1984, that's just exactly what, literally what we've been living through these last, you know, four or five years. This is this rise of, um, um, you know, global rise of sort of fascism again. And it's kind of easy to be like, you know, we lived through this before. It didn't go that well. Why, why are we doing this again? And, and the thing that surprises me is how people, how excited people are for it, how people seem to really like it in certain ways, which um, would not have been obvious to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things I read a lot of science fiction and I watch a lot of science fiction as you do. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I like mm-hmm. your work. But one of the reasons why really good science fiction like 1984 lasts so long, uh, Twilight Zone is another great example. Mm-hmm. It has resonance right now and it's like it keeps finding relevance within our culture. Like mm-hmm. we didn't learn the, all these Twilight Zone lessons and things like that. Like the monsters are due on Maple Street and things like that. And so it's like you keep coming back to it because it, it's still sadly relevant. Like it's one of those things we haven't resolved or like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like um, Terminator 2 was like early 90s, right? And we're getting closer and yeah. closer to yeah. AI and we haven't learned anything about Skynet and anything. And I'm like, hey, let's just keep going and see where mm-hmm. this goes. Yeah, I think, you know, you see articles about um, 
you know, people building robot dogs that can jump over buildings. And <laughs> why are we do why why are we doing this? I don't I don't know. There's um I uh, I don't know if I want to get too into it, but I used to, I, for a while I worked in the I had a day job in the tech world, um, and which is which is in a lot of ways very you know uh, some of the you know best work is happening there. But I found that there was some, kind of this weird amorality there, and by that there was a lot of, by that I mean there was a lot of like a lot of people saying like can we do this? How can we do this? And not so many people going. Should we do this? Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of people pushing pushing the boundaries for things we can do, and very few people are really, at least people with you know major um, decision making abilities, saying you know should we do this? Is it something we really should do? Is it great to, to do? It? Is it going to better society to do this? And I I don't know. I think we're we're living in weirdly amoral times. I think where where those types of questions aren't being asked enough. Yeah, I want to tie back to your paintings, but I just want to add to that that I think sometimes too there's there's a weird I guess similar to amoral like an a optimism I guess of like nobody really mm-hmm. considers that like, you know, like Facebook you Facebook sounded nice at the beginning, right? Like you can connect with your grandmother and your family mm-hmm. members and all that stuff, look up that kid in high school, uh see who mm-hmm. you know what I mean? See all those kind of things and then yeah. it never occurred to anybody that like it could be used for evil or that people would be committing suicide on the network and the platform. You know what I mean? Like it's a weird yeah. thing where like I don't know if they just don't think of that or if it's just like they're so locked into like everybody will like the like button and they don't realize that the psychological health and stuff of how much it damages people for like I didn't get any likes for my outfit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's again I don't I don't think that people who came up with it had bad motives necessarily, but I think you know we we I mean this is true everywhere, but we've shifted to this mode where it's about making money and optimizing, and, and now that we've got you know, computers crunching numbers and telling us like really how to like, you know, Facebook has a billion users, like they can figure out exactly how to make their product as addictive as they, as they want to, mm-hmm. you know, not to single out Facebook necessarily, but you know, just a lot of companies are doing this and nobody's sitting there going, well, wait a minute, <laughs> how is this affecting the fabric of society? Like, I don't know. Is it too late to put the genie back in the bottle? I don't, I don't know. And so this is why I want to, turn back to your paintings because mm-hmm. specifically the astronaut and he is like he reminds me of the marvel comics character the watcher uh, who hasn't shown up in the movies but in the mm-hmm. comics right the the watcher is like he shows up in like major pivotal moments or major stories and so mm-hmm. I, I was wondering like when you're putting the paintings together how much time do you also then think or are you consciously selecting the body language of the astronaut? Like, is that part of the creative process? Is he passing judgment or is he just kind of just like a silent witness? Like he can't get involved at all. And so we've made our decision. We're going to do AI. We're going to do Skynet. And then he's just going to sit there and like watch what happens. Yeah. I think that's, that's an interesting parallel you drew. I think that's, that's pretty close to how I think of the astronaut operating in my paintings. I kind of, I want I want this character, the astronaut, to be a very blank figure. Um, it's it's never clear who's in in the astronaut suit, or um, you know, I use the posture of the astronaut to, to denote certain things that you could I guess you could call emotions or reactions. But I want I generally want the astronaut to be a very sort of empty vessel, and that I, I think it's it's for most people it's pretty clear when they look at my work when they see a few of these paintings there's an astronaut figure in each and every one of them that they kind of naturally place themselves in the astronaut's um, boots, so to speak, shoes, um, mm-hmm. and, and walk around in the suit. And so see this, they can see this world that I'm creating from the vantage point of this very neutral observer. And that's something I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about over the years and is, is something that I now do somewhat deliberately because I want I want to, um, you know, the astronaut, even though the astronaut appears in all of my works is almost it's really more about the world that the astronaut is wandering around in. Mm. And so I want people to take a look at this world pretty objectively. And the astronaut actually, you know, it was a kind of accidentally good idea I had a long time ago. It actually works pretty well to, to sort of um, put you in this world and, and, and allows you to think about it in a way that um, you might not have, it was just sort of you, you know, um, you think about it like, you know, it, it, you, there's a lot of things we take for granted in our modern world that when you look at them from the vantage point of this strange 
um, observer. You kind of look at them differently. So that's that's kind of something I do with the astronaut figure. I think pretty deliberately. Yeah, no, it makes sense because like like I mentioned, like the like uh, I guess we're similar of age because like leading into the eighties, into the nineties, into two thousand, it was this bright shiny future. And the astronaut, especially the old school one, um, the the Apollo ones, they kind of represented mm-hmm. this nobility. Um, and like the mm-hmm. NASA was really like the height of science and technology and engineering yeah. far before far before we had Google and all these other things. And so the the, the astronaut kind of represents this really kind of um, nostalgia, I guess, for the way the way things mm-hmm. were kind of simpler back then. Uh, but also kind of like mm-hmm. a futuristic. So he's he's kind of paralleling the two worlds, which is what you were talking about before, and the way you kind of mentally think about these things. Yeah, no, that's uh, you know the astronaut who appears in each of my works. It's, it's modeled after um, the Mercury era astronauts, which is the very first um, American astronauts who went into space in the in the sixties. And yeah, the reason why 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 I picked that era of astronaut is pretty much exactly like you said. It was a real sort of utopian era, like space space is seen as this really optimistic future. And I do feel like we've we've really gotten away from that recently. And then the other the other reason why I picked that era is that back then they were just they were staying inside their little tiny capsules, so they didn't need these big bulky suits. Um, I like that the astronaut suit that I paint is a little bit. Um, trimmer you can really feel the kind of human in there mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas you know once you start going out into space you've got these big michelin man type astronaut suits yes. that feel a little bit less like it was a person in there maybe so as we're wrapping up i just want to ask a couple more questions oh uh i want to kind of stick with your work and i'm curious mm-hmm. this is kind of a weird analogy so i apologize but your paintings echo um gary larson's far side in a way um, in terms of uh, sar- mm. sarcasm and humor, but also you're framing mm-hmm. a specific moment. Like you have to capture the mm-hmm. exact moment in terms of the storytelling. Like it's like when you're flipping through TV channels and you land on a movie and like it's obviously 20 minutes in or something like this. So in terms of storytelling and as you kind of uh, you've been, you kind of think about all these different themes and different ideas, um, how do you know how to isolate and find the exact right moment of the story that you're trying to tell or trying to communicate? And like, do you sometimes find that you've started like isolated the wrong moment, uh, quote unquote, for the trailer, and then you have to kind of start all mm-hmm. all over? That's actually that's a that's a really good question. It's funny I haven't thought about Gary Larson that much in a very long time. But when I was a kid, I had a I had a couple of his books that were really important to me. Your sense of humor is very something. yeah. Your sense of humor. It's both of you. You got your work and his work is very sarcastic. I know it's a type of different yeah. hu- sense of humor, but it's like it's one yeah. panel, and there's a there's a humor and a playfulness to it, and science. Yeah, no, I remember reading, I remember reading some an interview with him for a long, long time ago, and I'm I'm probably butchering the the, the exact um, what he exactly said because it was a long time ago I read it, but I remember him, you know, talking about how you know for one of his panels, you know, like there's a there's one I'm thinking there's a lot you know where he has like a cow that's just exactly in the right <laughs> spot. And the cow is just has its position just so that it's just so awkward and funny, mm-hmm. and that if the cow were like positioned a little bit differently, it wouldn't it wouldn't quite have worked. Yeah. Um, or there's you know there's a famous there's a famous one of like you know there's a kid who's pushing on the door at the <laughs> entrance to like the genius school and yeah, it says pull the, and he's pushing on it. Yeah, center um, for the gifted or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he really, I think again, I'm paraphrasing, but he really thought of you know these little characters he's drawing as kind of actors in this play that he had to position exactly right to get the humor and the, the emotion exactly right. And, and that's actually very similar to how I think about um, my work. A lot of times, you know, when I'm, when I'm drawing up these paintings, uh, when I'm mocking them up, you know, I'll have the astronaut in and just, it's not quite doing exactly what I want it to. And sometimes I'll just swap it. Like I'll move the helmet, like the helmet needs to be tilted, like at a slightly different angle. And all of a sudden, that is exactly the the it's exactly what I was trying to say. Um, so I I guess what I'm saying is you know not, not to say that I'm like Gary Larson he's um, you know one of the most successful cartoonists of all time but um, I do think of, of arranging the pieces of my paintings kind of like a small play and I think he probably approached his cartoons in a very similar way and that you know moving things just a little bit over left or right or tilting the head can really make like all the difference in the world in terms of getting across 
exactly what it is you want to say. So that's a, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I'll have to go back and look at some Terry Larson cartoons now. Yeah, because it's like most of the time um, the astronaut is not always directly looking at us. He's kind of maybe a little bit off. Like you, like you said, he's a little tilted sometimes, looking something kind of different. Mm-hmm. But also because the the he's got the classic um, sunshade, like it's got the it's the darkened face, so you don't see his face at all. Mm-hmm. You don't actually quite know what it is that he's looking at, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it all of it kind of like comes together and kind of. You, your work is deceptively simple. You know how you sometimes read a um, uh, like a chapter or a couple of paragraphs in a book and you're like, okay, that makes sense. And you think about it and you're like, all right, whatever. And then you put the book down and then you mm-hmm. walk away and you're like, wait a minute. That was a really profound <laughs> statement. Like, you know what I mean? It just took you a second to like for the for the quarter basically to drop in the slot. And it's like, well, that writer is really good. That's And that's sometimes I think your work sometimes gets – um, I, I guess I don't want to say dismiss because that's kind of mean, but like that kind of tone where like, oh, it's just like pop culture. And I know sometimes the snootier mm-hmm. people will kind of classify it as mm-hmm. lowbrow. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. But then when you actually like think about it and you like walk away from it, then you're like, whoa, there was some like depth to it in the way that, like I said, the way that the astronauts kind of just watching this uh, tableau and watching it all unfold. And just being the silent mm-hmm. specter, it's kind of, um, yeah, there's like layers to it. It's not just as quite as simple as you think it is. Well, thank you. That's, that's, I, that, I really, really appreciate that. And that's, again, right from the early days when I first started these paintings, that was something that I really wanted to do. I kind of wanted them to hit on a couple levels. I was always okay with, you know, people just came and saw my work and they're like, oh, that's funny. This guy painted, you know, an astronaut hanging out with Chewbacca. Mm-hmm. Um, that's cool. I like Chewbacca. And if that's like kind of all they got out of it, I was like, okay, that's fine. If they like it on that level, that's cool. But I did try to weave in, I've always tried to weave in, um, you know, something a little bit more profound in there. And um, that's that's one thing I've gotten a lot better at over the years. My early paintings, I was not very good at it at all, but I've gotten a lot better at it over the years. And I think one of the, um, I don't know, one of the real pleasures of my art career is that I, I, people really do get that, I think. At least, you know, the people I hear from on social media, and I think they really do get the the underlying message of what I'm saying, that um, even though, you know, I do use this language of, you know, science fiction movies and pop culture and bits and pieces of stupid things, and I'll, you know, I'll make a painting with a Toys R Us in it or something, mm-hmm. you know, which, which seems a little bit juvenile, that people really, really have gotten the message behind my work um which is you know as a as a artist or a writer or a movie maker or a music you know a musician or anybody who does anything creative that's i don't I don't know if there's any bigger compliment of that that people you know you're saying something you're kind of shouting into the void and people are, are hearing it um so i don't know that's been you know probably one of the highlights of my art career is that um you know people do get the message that i'm kind of hinting at yeah, that is cool. So then are you getting closer to getting the stuff that's in your head out onto the canvas, onto the paint? Because that's also the other creative struggle sometimes is closing that gap between mm-hmm. what you see in your head and getting that out into the world. Yeah, I think I've gotten, that's another thing that I've gotten a lot better at. You know, when you, when you first start as a painter, you're really worried about this sort of like, does this look good? You know, does, can, I, can I actually paint an astronaut that looks like an astronaut? And you're worried about a whole, all kinds of different things on that level. And it's not until much later where you really get like, is this is this painting saying exactly what I want it to say? Is it set is it you know setting the exact emotional tone? Is there some consistency between my work that's that if you look at all of my paintings, you kind of get a story? Those are things that kind of came for me later in my career. And I think the last couple of shows I've done, which you know have come out during this um, during this pandemic, were kind of a real test for me because they weren't just talking about, you know, it wasn't just a conversation about my work and it wasn't even just a conversation about the future. It was really a conversation about what we were all living through right at this moment. It was almost like I was, um, you know, painting in real time about what what's happening now. And I, and I had no idea if people would really respond to it. Um, and I was, I've been very pleasantly surprised that they, they really have. I think, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to make something um, make a piece of artwork that talks about the time you're living in right now as it's happening. Um, um, but that hopefully also resonates later on down the line. So um, I'm, 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 
not going to say I'm hardly at the end of my line in terms of being able to <laughs> do things successfully. I'm sure I've got lots of room to, to grow and learn, but I, um, I do feel pretty happy that the work I've done over the last six months, I think, has um, kind of successfully been, been a really successful way to, for me to talk to people during a time when I can't talk to people, really, at least not in person. Yeah, so that brings up my final point, I guess, which is like, how are you balancing Instagram versus like art galleries? Because you've had a number of shows in a number mm -hmm. of cities and countries, um, and I enjoy mm -hmm. the art gallery experience. And I'm not saying or suggesting that one is quote unquote better than the other. Um, they're obviously mm -hmm. like, as a painter, as a, somebody who works on a visual medium, um, they're both two mm -hmm. unique platforms and both um, offer your audience and your fans uh, unique experiences. So how are you balancing Instagram versus galleries? Well, it's, it's always, you know, it's always been a balance of both. Um, and I think that's still true right now. Um, you know, it was actually kind of instrumental for me to realize, this is a long time ago, I realized like 10 years ago that, you know, probably 99.9% .9 of people who ever see my work see it online only. Um, they don't get to see it in person. And, you know, for a lot of artists, especially a lot of, you know, more traditional painters, that's seen as kind of a a bummer. Like, oh, well, you really got to see it in person. It's so much better. And, like, that's true. Like, you know, it is cool to see work in person. It's always better to see it in person. But the ability to, you know, I was talking a little while ago about the amorality of technology, but it does do some amazing things. Like, my career couldn't exist without it. Um, the fact that I can, you know, I've, I've had paintings that I've put on Instagram that, um, literally maybe two humans alive has seen in person, you know, they haven't even left my studio and all of a sudden literally tens of thousands of people are seeing it all over the world is frankly amazing. Like that's, that's incredible. Like that's, I, I can't even say how amazing that is for me as an artist. Um, so that part of it has always, always been important. And, you know, the gal galleries, you know, I guess there's two points. There's the business side of the galleries, which is important for me as an artist. But then there's, I think is what you're hinting at is like the actual ability to see the work in person in the gallery. Is that kind of what you were wondering about? Yeah, because the problem I think with the internet is that you obviously like, if you put a, if you post a painting and I'm like, that painting's terrible, I can just like walk away and then just like not see anything mm -hmm. else you do or anything like that. Because the internet is just full mm -hmm. of distraction. But when you go to a gallery mm -hmm. and you kind of immersed into a handful of rooms of your mm. work, then you get to see a better mm -hmm. sense of who you are. You get, in a sense, forced to kind of like go through your work or the work that you're presenting, in this case, for the quarantine exhibition. I recently went to mm -hmm. um, our art gallery, the AGO, uh, Art Gallery of Ontario, and um, mm -hmm. they had a Diane Arbus ex exhibition. And I knew the name mm -hmm. and I'd seen some of her, like the, the twins from uh, The Shining. I'd seen a couple of photos, but I mm -hmm. didn't really know her stuff. And obviously I could like... Mm -hmm look up stuff on Instagram or Google or whatever, and I could see a bunch of her stuff. But going room to room, I was like, you get to kind of be immersed in her world and see all the kind of, see if there are certain themes that kind of show up and stuff like that. And yeah, I was like, mm -hmm. by the time I left it, I was like, whoa, this girl's really cool. I'm in. Like, I, I like her. Like, she, I'm a fan mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what's getting at. Yeah, no, I know. I know. No, I know exactly what you mean. When I was uh, in my formative years, when I was, I was maybe like 20, I went to see a big, um, a, show, a big show of Mondrian's work in New York, mm -hmm. who, I mean, I think most people know Mondrian and, you know, art people are like, yeah, he's good. Um, but, you know, it, you know, he's kind of known for this very, very strict, almost, um, you know, uh, style, of, you know, just sort of blocks of color. Um, and I remember going through this whole gallery and at the very end of his life, he moved from um, after World War II or maybe during World War II, he moved um, to New York from Europe. And he actually started, he was really influenced by jazz, the jazz scene in New York, and started doing these paintings that were for him much more lively, I think. And if you had just sort of seen them online, you'd be like, oh, hey, another great, another geometric Mondrian. Mm -hmm. But after moving through this whole gallery of his work, these paintings at the end felt like really full of life and lively and, and everything. And I, I don't know, I think about that a lot in terms of, I don't know, you, you got to kind of live with an artist's a whole experience to really kind of get what they were what they were thinking and be in their world. So I don't know. I, that's a long story, but um, yeah, I was, I, do, I, 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 I rambled too. Do. Don't worry. <laughs> um, and you know, obviously, I, I want people to see my work in person, and it's been, you know, there's obviously a lot worse things happening in the world right now. So I'm not. I don't really want to complain about it. But my last two shows that have come up during this, people haven't really gotten to see in person, and that is a 
it's a bummer. You know, again, there's, again, much worse things happening mm-hmm. in the world. But as an artist, we spend a lot of time working on these shows. And, and it's great that people see them on Instagram. But if nobody can go see them in person, it does feel a little empty. Um, so, I don't know. I, I hope we can return to a, to a time where people can, can go look at art shows again. I, I certainly miss it myself quite a bit. Um, I know other people do. Um, hopefully you know, when the world becomes a safer place and we get back to doing all those things we used to do that we can, you know, hopefully museums and galleries will survive through this until then. Um, Cause I do, I, I agree with you. I think that's a, I think it's a really important piece of, of looking at art to, to kind of immerse yourself in it in person. I just want to add to like, you also don't know what's always out there. And so sometimes you gonna mm-hmm. you go to a gallery and you might want to go see your stuff or somebody like I went to see Diane Arbus at the AGO and then all of a sudden you wander to the next mm-hmm. room and you're like, yo, who's this guy? Like, what's happening here? This stuff is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like you don't know always mm-hmm. what's out there, right? And you don't know how to search for like you can't ask Google, find me cool stuff. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well I think one of the one of the huge biggest inspirations to me and the things that I try to capture in my work is this kind of element of exploration and surprise this idea that like i often think i often think back sometimes when like i'd travel to a city i didn't really know and you'd be wandering around and all of a sudden you'd you know you'd go over the top of some hill and there's a beautiful view that you didn't even know was there and that's a similar experience to discovering a new artist that you had never heard of um you know in a museum or a gallery those types of things are really really inspiring to me um and the things that i you know we, we haven't been able to do while we're all kind of stuck for the most part, in some sort of a quarantine, you can't, you can't really travel, you can't really get new experiences, you can't go look at art, um, you can't even go to a movie theater and see, you know, the latest Marvel movie, which is, <laughs> which is a bummer. <laughs> but um, hopefully, hopefully someday soon we'll get to do that again. So, where can people find you online, uh, especially with your IG, to see some of your work or to see if you have some shows coming up once we eventually get back to galleries? Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, my name is Scott Listfield. I'm online at, at Scott Listfield. That's uh, S-C-O-T-T-L-I-F-T-F-I-E-L-D. Uh, my website is astronautdinosaur.com. And I'm, I'm pretty easy to, to find by via Google. Uh, I'm, on, I'm, on, you know, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all the usual places, too. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. Uh, we covered uh, the upcoming, well, the current exhibition quarantine, which runs mm-hmm. till October 10th. Uh, in New York City, mm-hmm. and uh, we covered uh, like Gary Larson, <laughs> Far Side, uh, Terminator <laughs> Two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Gary Larson, Killer Mike. There you go. Yeah. So I think we did. We covered quite a bit, didn't we? We did. That was that was good. That was a lot of topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you for your time. Um, that's it. There's nothing else we gotta cover. Or anything? Oh, mm-hmm. you know what? We didn't talk about the the Tim Hortons piece. Uh, the <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I let down all my Canadian people. All right, if you want to talk about the Tim Hortons case, we can. All right, give me a couple of minutes on the if you if you don't if you have the time, I appreciate it. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I like about your your stuff is you also not just the sci-fi elements, but you also have sprinkle in um kind of corporate uh, advertising logos, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And one of the pieces you had was the Tim Hortons logo, which was kind of strange. Where did that come from, or how did that one come about? Yeah. That's uh, it's funny. That's one of my weirdest, weirder paintings, and I'm always nervous when I do something that feels kind of a little esoteric or weird. And then it's often those pieces that people love the most. Mm-hmm. So I, I've learned to kind of embrace the uh, the things that are a little bit weird. Um, so I have a, I have a back I have a bit of a background in design, and so I'm always interested in, in logos and how I often think of like a modern landscape as a series of like repeating logos and colors that we've created for ourselves, as opposed to trees we have you know a mcdonald's logo next to a uh, next to a tim hortons logo next to a burger king logo or whatever um and that's something i've kind of thought about for a long time um i had a show that i did um it was i guess it was three years ago now here in los angeles called that i called franchise which i had been thinking about i'd made a couple paintings about um i made a couple paintings referencing in and out um the very famous uh west burger. coast burger place that people here love Secret menu. Um, and people are really, yeah, the secret menu. People here love in and out Like, it's just like this real, like, way of life thing. And I, I, I struck up a conversation with a friend of mine who worked in the gallery at the time about how kind of each, 
you know, regions, certainly in the United States, but also elsewhere, they have these, you know, places like that. Like in the South, there's Waffle House. And I grew up in the Northeast, you know, Dunkin' Donuts. And, um, you know, in Canada, obviously, there's Tim Hortons. And um, in uh, Texas, there's uh, Whataburger. There's these, like, local local chains, franchises that are, that are kind of regional that just people love. And it's, it's this weird thing. I, as I dug into it, it really kind of ties into a sense of nostalgia because you probably went to those places when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. But it also ties into like this real sense of like regional pride, almost like a like a local team, like a local um, basketball or football team or something. And so like people feel really really tied to these things. And so I kind of I came up with this idea to make this whole series of paintings that again I called franchise about these weirdly specific local regional places that people loved. And I had them set kind of in these semi-dystopian landscapes that would be appropriate for, for that region. Mm-hmm. So uh, apologies to Canada. I set Tim Hortons in this kind of like frozen Arctic winterscape. Yes. <laughs> um, and I set the uh, Waffle House in the South in this kind of swamp. And I, and I made a Starbucks, even though Starbucks is everywhere now, but I made it in this sort of like Pacific Northwest forest. And um, it was a show that I, it was actually really fun to research all these different brands and logos. And, and a lot of times they've got very unique, architecture like their buildings are shaped funny and um they've, they've got very bright specific colors and it was, it was one of the more fun shows to research and i honestly i thought at the time i did i thought this show might be like the last show i ever do like is anybody going to want to buy any of these paintings like who's <laughs> going to buy a Tim Hortons painting who's going to buy a, a waffle house painting who's going to uh, you know uh, uh by a Randy's Donuts painting. Um, and it turned out to be, at the time, one of my most popular shows ever. People really, really responded to it and loved it. And, you know, it, it gets back to the thing I was talking about, about exploration of, of different parts of the world. Um, and, and I think people, I don't know, you know, people who get to know my work kind of enjoy seeing the astronaut go to a place that, that feels familiar to them, either their city or their local, their local place. So, yeah, it's funny, the Tim Hortons piece in particular was one where I was thinking, like, is anybody, is this, why am I painting this? Is this the dumbest idea I've ever had? <laughs> and um, shout out to all my Canadian friends. Like, they were so excited to see the Tim Hortons in my painting. Um, but I actually, I hear, I hear about that one all the time. People, people write to me about the Tim Hortons piece all the time. It reminded me of, um, remember the Sylvester Sloan movie Demolition Man? If you if you blocked it out, that's mm-hmm. fine. It was a terrible movie. But um, <laughs> The um, the, they had Taco Bell in there, and I don't remember what year that movie yep. was set. But the idea that Taco Bell sur- had survived decade after decade, and to be in this like future where you could freeze criminals and do all these things, it it's very jarring. But at the same time, it's like oh, that's kind of comforting too, in a way. Like the future is not that different, if that makes sense. And so it's the same thing with the yeah. Tim Hortons. Like it is a bit of a yeah, dystopian well, future, but it. it's still familiar in a sense. There's a scene in, um, have you seen Ad Astra, the Brad Pitt movie that came yeah. out last year? Yeah, mm-hmm. he goes after Tommy Lee Jones' dad. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, there's a scene, I'm blanking on what it is. He's flying away from, I think he's flying out of the moon. And again, I don't remember when this movie is set, some point in the future. But he's flying away from the moon. And you can see on the, on the lunar landscape, there's a little neon sign for, it was like Kentucky Fried Chicken or something. Some, some, yeah, some yeah, yeah. chain restaurant. Mm-hmm. Had a location on the moon. And I, that was actually... I mean, this speaks to me. That was probably my favorite part of the movie. Like, it just cracked me up. And I think, I don't know, that feels really realistic. Like, I think, <laughs> I think whatever the future holds, a lot of these fast food places, they're still going to be around. We're still going to, you know, no matter how far in the future we go, we're going to still want that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of love that incorporation of, of what feels sort of mundane and, and 20 you know, early 21st century, placing that in, you know, 200 years from now feels, yeah. I don't know, kind of fun and, and weird. We've set up uh, Tim Hortons in Afghanistan for obviously the Canadian troops and things like that. And I know there's a couple wow. of other um, uh, kind of like, I don't think it's McDonald's, but there's a couple other corporate chains as well have set up a couple mm-hmm. of uh, restaurants, I guess, for the, the troops just to have a little bit of familiarity and like, have a taste of home, basically, of what you're talking about, right? And it's just, a, it's just weird because mm-hmm. it's like when you go to when you go to the site and you look, you have to put in your little zip code or your postal code to find the locations, whatever. Afghanistan is listed there, mm-hmm. and it's just like, why would you end up 
in there like it just seems so far <laughs> flung right like you expect it to be in new york mm-hmm. city you expect it to be in different places and then it's like yeah it's because mm-hmm. it's like what you're talking about we're like as weird as it is it's just like in the middle of this war zone uh they just want to give people mm-hmm. some familiarity some comfort and they know for like two minutes or five minutes you can kind of go there and it's everything's normal you know how to order you know what the food is like all of that yeah that gets that gets like exactly to what i was talking about with that sort of there's a strange familiarity, nostalgia, comfort to those places. Even if you haven't been to one of them, and funny, like I don't go to a lot of fast food places myself, but there's still this, like, this innate sense of being home almost with some of those places. Which is, I have mixed feelings about it because, like, I don't, I don't love some of those places for for a number of obvious reasons, but it's still it's there. It's it's in my brain. I can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and as you said, it's part of our landscape, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. I've been to L.A. uh, many times. And, of course, it's just like when you're driving and you see the in and outs. um, And I know enough that Mm -hmm. it it has a secret menu. Mm -hmm. So I don't order like a tourist, basically. But, again, it's just it's that experience, though, right? Like, you go to California, you go to in and out and you come back. Like, so Mm -hmm. it's the way our, our, quote, unquote, our system, (laughs) our cities and stuff are set up. Yeah, it is. It really is. That's the way we've... um... It's the, it's the modern landscape, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I've taken up a lot of your time. I apologize, uh, but thank you so no, much. No, it's fine. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, no, I had a, it was a good time. I enjoyed the conversation, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for talking to me. Have a good one. Yo, that was dope. That was Scott Lesfield, and I am Sammy Yunan. Before I go, if you want to stay informed, if you want to be the cool kid on the block with all the inside info, I got a way for you to do that without going on social media. My newsletter, My Pal Sammy, is handy and dandy in that order. TV and book and podcast and you name it, recommendations. I just hung out with a painter on this My Summer Layer episode. Clearly, I have taste. Well, some taste. If you go to mysummerlayer.com, you can sign up for the newsletter without the headaches and stress of social media. You're welcome. My name is Sammy Yunan. This has been My Summer Layer. Thank you for listening to me in a Netflix world. Art, yo.